Uh, now I'm pleased to introduce our speakers. Uh, Anita Diamond is the author of 12 books. Her first work of fiction, The Red Tent, became a publishing sensation, a New York Times bestseller adapted for television and published in more than 25 countries. She followed it with five more novels and has also published essays and non-fiction guides to Jewish life. She has publicly confessed to having a Shakespeare crush. <laughs> That's what it says down here. A deep appreciation for gorgeous iambic pentameter lines and 400-year-old jokes that still land. Fred Sullivan, Jr. is celebrating 13 seasons with Shakespeare on the Common, and this, I believe, is his first time of directing on the Common. Up until now, it's been pretty much steep. Uh, Fred has played Malvolio, Capulet, Bottom, Buckingham, Gloucester, Falstaff, and many more leading roles with the Trinity Repertory Company, the GAM Theatre, and of course with Commonwealth Shakespeare Company. He presently teaches acting at the GAM Theatre and at the Rhode Island School of Design. Tonight we're here to celebrate Cymbeline, a play with a fairy tale plot that offers a bit of everything for everybody. Intrigue, sorrow, passion, forgiveness, and reconciliation. And I highly recommend that you head over to the performance on the common after this talk. It's a beautiful summer evening awaits us, and the Commonwealth Shakespeare Company production of Cymbeline is delightful. I know this because I was there last night. So please join me in welcoming Anita Diamond and Fred Sullivan, Jr. What a beautiful room, what a beautiful place to be. I'm honored beyond honor. What about you? You honored? Yeah, we just had a tour. And yeah. I, so I'm a little awestruck. Yeah. <laughs> Very much so. Um, I just want to uh, pay homage to one of the members of the Athenaeum from years past, um, from Ralph Waldo Emerson. Uh, I, I found this amazing quote of his. This is from one of his journals. He was a Shakespeare fan, you could say super fan, in fact. And he actually imagined, this is real, that if there were visitors from outer space, our world would be chiefly understood and valued because it was the home of Shakespeare. So this is a quote from his journal. If intellect perceives and converses in climes beyond the solar road, they probably call this planet not Earth, but Shakespeare. They will say that the final cause of the creation of the earth was Shakespeare. So, and away we go. So I'm going to ask Fred a few questions, and he will carry on. Okay. So um, I've been talking about Cymbeline for a few, for about two months now. I had the pleasure of sitting in on many rehearsals, and I told people I was going to rehearsals for Cymbeline, and people would have one of two reactions. Cymbeline? Never heard of that? Did Shakespeare write that? 
And then for the dedicated Shakespeare nerds that I know, they all would say, I never saw that one. <laughs> so I want to start by asking you, Fred, why do you think that Cymbeline fell off the rotation of plays that we see, Shakespeare plays that we see? It's an excellent question. Oh, good. I don't have an answer. Um, sure you do. Yes, you do. I think it's really hard. I think it's a really hard play, and I think if you only take it seriously, um, because it was first under the title of tragedy when they didn't have a word for things that weren't comedies and tragedies and histories, if you take it really, really seriously, I think it can be overwrought and absurd and a bit dull. Long? How long? And is it's it? very long. Uh, our version is not. Well, I had to take out about 45 minutes just because when I directed it, I have to think of what is the venue. I have to think of who's going to see it. Um, you know, it, it's different if you, I direct a lot in a 180 seat theater. Um, and so we, we've done Hamlet twice in that theater and you just do it very differently when you know it's going to be an intimate experience than you do when you know there's going to be 5,000 people on a Saturday night, everybody from Shakespeare experts that were there last night, I just learned that that's really exciting, and nine-year-old kids who are squirming and who are trying to, you know, find what they can find out of it, and that actually makes me cry when I watch that. Um, so I wanted to reach everyone, because the first night I ever acted at Commonwealth, I looked out upon that audience of thousands of people and wept because to me it was the closest thing in my life to replicating the type of audience that Shakespeare had. That it was all levels, I mean that we do it free. So it was all walks of life and uh, it, it was just an incredibly diverse audience and I was deeply, deeply moved by that. Uh, why people don't do Cymbeline? is because I think it's an incredibly complex plot. When I tried to write the summary for the program, I burst out laughing because there was no way that I could kind of put all the details in there that you might need to know. My sister always says, I need a summary. What book should I read? Or what, you know, can you send me stuff that I need? And I said, they're plays. You come and see them and experience them. And if the people who know what they're doing, you know, put them on, you will be able to understand everything. You really will. It takes about five minutes to adjust your ear to the 400-year-old language. But when you see it well-directed and, uh, and staged, as Commonwealth always does, you know the story. You know the characters. Okay, um, so what made you choose Symbolism? Well, I know there was a bit of a choice involved. There right? was. I had a little bit of a say in it. Um, Steve is the head honcho, and he came to me and said, would you like to direct a romance, which is the last four? of Shakespeare's. I'm talking to people who know more about Shakespeare than I do, but I want to also talk to people who don't. So the last four Shakespeare's are Pericles, Cymbeline, uh, The Winter's Tale, and The Tempest, and so that would be what he was talking about. And I had played Pericles in grad school, I've been in The Winter's Tale three times and I've directed it, and I've been in The Tempest three times and I've directed it. So I said, how about Cymbeline? And he said, really? <laughs> And, and I said, yeah, I'm, I'm just really interested. It's a bald spot in my learning. I want to immerse myself in it. I saw a terrible production of it when I was about 28. And it was just wretched. 
Um, it was really authentic, you know, people wearing bare skins and speaking in English accents, and I fell asleep in the first 15 minutes, you know. It had nothing for me other than pretension and death. So, um, I decided I wanted to see if I could treat it. The Winter's Tale, to me, seems like a fairy tale. So I said, well, there's a wicked queen, and there are lost boys, and there are, you know, is a big oaf that wants to marry her, and there are all a Cinderella kind of relationship, and a lot of Snow White, these guys in the woods lay her out pretty, you know, as they think she's dead. And I'm like, that's Disney. That's, you know, Disney used to say, with every laugh, you need a tear, you know, and so he had the dwarfs crying and everybody would go, oh my God, what an art form. Well, I wanted to do the Disney Cymbeline. So then uh, I said to the set director, I, I need a castle. And he said, oh, that's horrible. And I said, the Ben and Jerry's guy wants a castle. He told me last year. Because uh, the park looks great when you have a castle in it. So he built this very subtle castle into the boxes. Can you hear me? Can you understand me? Um, the answer why Cymbeline was just because I've done 20, I had done 27 of the 37 plays, uh, and I wanted to do the 28th. And the, the rest are on the list? All, so I have, have the nine left now nine. that are the, the bucket list, and if we do the War of the Roses, that will cover three. <laughs> right? Okay. So let's just do the War of the Roses. Okay. I think we should do that, too. Um, one of the things, when I first start, started talking with you about this, um, we talked about the, the taxonomy, that it's not a tragedy because not everyone's dead and there's really not a comedy because there's not a lot of weddings at the end of it. So it got called, <laughs> it, right, that's, that's what makes them, right? Right. Um, so it's point. been called a romance, a tragic comedy, and then it's been called a problem play. And when I said that to you, you said, they're all problem plays. So I would like you to explain why they're all problem plays. Well, a man in the audience uh, who I just met and is brilliant said to me, a friend of mine says that um, act four of Much Ado About Nothing ruins the play. And I have worked on Much Ado About Nothing. Steve's directed it. Um, those of us who love Shakespeare try to solve that problem. You know, <laughs> uh, like people say, oh, wait a minute. No, I hate that play. I've never seen a good one. I said, well, you need to go see a good one. And then it's not a problem. You have the, <laughs> the, the right people working on it and trying to figure out how to, how to achieve the balance, you know, of what you can believe, what is absurd, what you can laugh at, what you can share with him. Um, I think they're all problem plays, you know, and especially things like Tammy the Shrew and Merchant of Venice and Othello have gained new problems. Um, as each age goes by, but should we stop doing them? I don't think so. I think we need to keep diving into that resource because there's so much wisdom, there's so much humanity, there's so much beauty in the language. And that's why you can keep going to the same play. You do over go to the over. same play. I, I, I talk to people who say, "Well, I already did that one," and I feel like, "What do you mean you already did?" All's well. That's well, next year we're going to do the Tempest, which I, Steve has already directed. No, no, but every time you go, I've been in, but it's a, they're all different. They solve the problem a different way. Yeah, they solve the, the problem, problem a different way. way. If they're good, yep. if they're not, that it remains a problem. <laughs> <laughs> right. So if you walk out of the theater and go, eh, I, didn't, I, didn't, I didn't get that, then guess what? Fault. You need to go see it's another. It's not your one. fault. I think a lot of people go to see Shakespeare and they leave and they think I didn't understand it. it I'm stupid. Well, or that's I'll, all plays. I mean, yeah, but in somebody particular, said to me, Tom Stoppard's. Arcadia made me feel stupid, and I said, all the characters are obsessed with something, and one is obsessed with math, and one is obsessed with uh, poetry, Byron. I said, if you just sit there and watch them be obsessed, 
and don't feel like you need to know as much as they do, then you won't feel stupid. <laughs> but if you sit there going, oh, I, I should have read more books. I don't know anything about Byron. I don't get the jokes. It's like, it's calm down. Relax. Woo -woo. I just saw a Kenneth Branagh movie about Shakespeare that all the jokes are only for Shakespeare experts. You know, there are second bed, best bed jokes in this movie. And people go, I kind of hated that movie. And I was like, it wasn't for you. You know, <laughs> he didn't make it for you. Yeah. So one of the things that's interesting about Cymbeline is that, um, so we are doing it here this summer. Two years ago, Shakespeare and Company did Cymbeline. Mm -hmm. Hudson Valley is doing Cymbeline right this right now. I have so, in it. Uh, so it's a moment. Cymbeline is having its moment. Um, is why that do true? Think, if those three theaters well, do it, that's I, the moment? Well, you know what? There's going to be more. No, what's what it yeah. does? It does. There are. It does. They fashion. go around. They go in if fashion. you look in the American Theater Magazine at the back, when they say what is playing now, there will be like 17 Othellos yeah. one year, and then the next year there will be 14 Hamlets, and you don't know why they all decided. Well, at the actually, same time. there was th there were a lot of Richard the Thirds and a lot of uh, um, a lot of Richard the Thirds. And last year. Last year. Oh, and, 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 and oh, and, I understand where you're going yes, with this. Politically. Something was in the zeitgeist politically yes, that yeah. made people want to do tyrants. I don't know why. Yeah, really. <laughs> right. So but maybe, yeah, there maybe were a lot of Shakespeare theater. theaters that were a saying, lot. we need to do tyrants. We yes, need to do yes. tyrants that must be stopped. And there we were did. many, and many, many. I don't know why. I don't know why. I don't know why artistic directors lean that way. But I have three of my best friends in the world are artistic directors. And one of them said, how many red-haired Richard III's will we see this year? Anyway. Uh, one of the things when we were talking about this from the beginning, and you said this in interviews, is that this is a play about toxic masculinity, mm. which I think is brilliant. How many of you are, have not seen this play yet? Um, so I actually worry about spoilers in yeah, Shakespeare. It's very funny. I'll that. just say the boys get angry when they don't get their own way and they get violent. Now, that's not giving anything away. Um, because boys will be boys, as they say, and, and they shouldn't be. Um, as we try to, you know, crawl up from the ooze onto the beach, <laughs> um, it's good to be reminded uh, what we are all capable of, the darkness inside of us, and I think Shakespeare is expert. At, uh, at bringing that out. And, and this, this, this is this... not just a comedy. There's some oh, no. dark violence. There's a it. lot of dark violence. And actually, it's different varieties of toxic masculinity, as I was thinking about it. There her is father, her the father, husband, her husband, and her suitor. Her suitor. Are completely oh, out of control. One of the great names in Shakespeare, Clotten. Rhymes. <laughs> rhymes with rotten. Yes. Yeah. Claude, Clot. Clot, yeah. It's, it's just really an awful, name. awful name. And, and yet, uh, it's, Ethan Hawke. perfect. Ethan Hawke made a movie and called him Cloton. Oh. And I was disappointed. But anyway. But he missed I like the point. Clotten. I like Clotten. Yeah. Everybody this says is, it like with a kind we of. We weren't there, so we don't know what their accents were, and we need a time machine to figure. I would kill to have a little time machine and see Richard Burbage. Um, but. You know, we have to make our best guess and research and read everything we can. I, uh, during my life, since I was 10 years old, I've, I've been in about 60 Shakespeare plays. And I love it so much that I will turn down other work and get paid less to do it, you know. Um, and so our best guess is usually an educated guess. 
but clotten. It's perfect. I mean, uh, you can't. It, no. it, it's and when perfect. you see the guy who yes, plays it, him. Yes, there's oh. a clotten right there. There's a clotten. And from now on, he's, that, he's, I love him dearly, but he looks like a clotten. He does look like he's made to look like a clotten, too. <laughs> and he acts like a great clotten. Um, and so this is a, a very masculine play. There are only really two parts for women in it. It is. A, um, yeah. it, it's a lot of boys. Um, yeah, this is also one of the most attractive be... casts you are going to see on the I stage. I wouldn't miss this play if I were you. Because yeah, no. you'll be thinking about them all the time. Yes, yes. Um, there's a very attractive cast. My costume designer said, this is the sexiest group of people. I said, well, it's not an issue of, you know, Vogue. I, or, you know, it's, they're actors. Yes. They're really, they're very really good, 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 good actors. But I want to talk about the women in the play. I okay. will talk about okay. the women in the play. It was important to me, though, that we cast it. I mean, the way to go now is to change a lot of men to women. Uh -huh. It was important to me, because so many people don't know the story, to do what was originally intended. Um, so I, I just felt that we shouldn't be, the RSC did it when they changed Cymbeline to a woman and the mean queen was a guy and uh, Pisanio oh, was this. a woman. Oh, oh, now, don't them. get, don't so, get, so, don't don't, get don't that, do that way. way don't. Um, these plays are meant to be done every kind of way, yeah. every kind of way, in every kind of theater. Because he is the most elastic, I think, of all the writers. You can't, can't do so much with Chekhov or, or David Mamet or, or Sam Shepard. But you can do almost, within reason, uh, anything you want with Shakespeare. And you'll still get that language and the relationships and the characterization. So they are meant to be seen over and over and over again and not just have the perfect DVD Version but I also, the, the fact that they are all played by men, it just occurred to me that, yeah, I'm, I'm very used to seeing casting against gender and all, all that. Lot, it's yeah. fine. I mean, I'm should. very used to it. But yeah. this one, because it's so because much about I decided that very early on because yeah. I was like, oh, my God, Steve gave me nine equity. Uh, I have nine equity contracts. I have four non-equity contracts. And we have a resident uh, uh, grad school type of training program of a thing we call Commonwealth Shakespeare Company 2, CSC2. And the 11 people in that, uh, they were doing Romeo and Juliet. So the director of that said, oh, it's mostly men because there's only the two mothers and the daughter in that. So I'll have three women. Is that OK? I said, yeah, I'll take three women and eight men. We have 11. They're all so great. They're all so amazingly talented this year that I look forward to seeing what they do with their careers because um, I just felt lucky to work with them. They're they're as good as the equity company this year. Yeah. So um, why are there so few women? No, no, not oh. why. I just want to talk about these two characters. Let's talk they're about very, the women, very yeah. different. And again, no spoilers, but there's two women. There's the queen who has no name. She is the queen. No name. So total archetype, right? She, and your she she first line is about being her stepmother. Yeah. And it's about you know, the Bruno Bettelheim kind of uses of enchantment, the, the fairy tales, the grim fairy tales. Evil, evil stepmother. She says, oh, I'm not like the that, yes. characterization of, yeah. I mean, the, the yes. cliche yes. of the evil stepmother, and then she's just that. And, so. every, and everybody knows it except for one person. Everybody knows that she's truly evil. His, her husband. Her husband. Which seems and, true to me. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> He has a great excuse for it at for the end. Being married for 23 years, I, yes. it seems very true. Yeah, he's got a great excuse at the end. She was pretty. Yeah. That's the excuse. Oh, anyway. no. He says other things. Yes, but mostly. Yeah. Anyway. Uh, well, and then anybody who comes to me and says an Imogen yes, is Imogen. the most, you know, she's Rosalind, which um, 
Harold Bloom would say is the greatest heroine of all time. But she's like Viola and Rosalind, and, and she's just radiant and smart and beautiful and everything in the world. And so everybody can say, oh, this is a feminist play. And I say, don't forget the queen is evil. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I think life is you yeah. get one thing and then you get the other. And it's, I don't so, think so it's Imogen, point of but view you is. can start with her as sort of an archetype, too. She's the damsel in distress. She's a princess. She's, and she yet, stands up to her father everything. In the very no, 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 no. The very first scene, from the very first scene, and she, everything she says, she's like demure, but she's sarcastic. She ha she rages. She gives Clotten the tongue lashing of the universe. Um, even when wait, even when she screams, which she does in a very girly kind of way, it's not like ooh. It's like ah, something just happened to me, and this is the voice that comes out of me. You know, she's not a damsel in distress. She's, she's like Megan. No, no, she's like uh, Megan Rapino in a gown. You know that's. You wrote that. You had yes, to I did. It. I had to look see, it up. See, it's a good a line. See, when I say a joke, it just comes out. Yeah, well, that's you're better than me. But no, 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 no. She writes it down. Um, and then when she, the thing is, when she puts on pants, which she does later, it's like she's more comfortable. Uh, and you've seen her in a skirt the whole time, and she carries it off well. Uh, and then... She, we wanted the Cinderella and Snow yeah. White uh, yeah. look and relationship. But uh, Nora called me this morning. I had sent her a picture. Um, Nora plays. I, I, Nora, Nora plays. Nora plays Imogen. And she wrote me this morning. She said, "Can you send me a picture in the in the army outfit? Because that's my favorite costume." <laughs> so I cast the right person. <clears throat> you yep. know, I mean, yeah, she yeah. loves wearing the pants. Yeah, she loves wearing the pants. Um, what was the hardest thing in in directing this for you? Um, there is a dream that you told me to cut. You're um, not going to, I'm never saying anything to you off the, you, you don't know what off the record means, do you? <laughs> um, there, there, there's, there are elements in this play that I feel that because they, <laughs> the globe burned down and they were doing it inside in Blackfriars that he wanted a spectacle. He wanted to be able to bring gods in and he does that in all of the romances. And I felt that it would be a disservice to him who I, you know, feel like I am trying to serve, um, to cut that because he wanted, you know, Aristotle says this, this, and this are, are plays, and one of them, the last one, but the, one of them is spectacle. And he put a god coming in on an eagle, you know? <laughs> and, and I said... <laughs> couldn't resist. Why just couldn't resist. Why would we cut that? <laughs> Why would we cut that? It's on the Boston Common, which on the, my second rehearsal with Steve, I was sitting there and I, I was playing Nick Bottom in A Midsummer Night's Dream, and I said, ah, like that or something. And he said, when you get the idea, can you stand up? And I said, why? He said, because it's on a football field. Um, <laughs> it really, we, we really have to not overact. It's not about overacting at all. Mm -hmm. But we have to extend our bodies into the thought. And we have to extend everything we have into the language. Because I can do it in a 130 or 180 seat house. But if this is for 5,000 people, we have to make sure everybody's getting something. And the genius of the, this is just a technical thing, but the genius of Steve's company is that I can walk out to Tremont Street and hear every syllable of Shakespeare clearly. A couple of people have told me that they had a hard time hearing it. And so I've gone all the way around to make sure I had the right actors, you know, who could serve the language. That's a very, very important thing. And I've gone all the way around the park and I can always hear it. And that's so important. That's the language is the biggest ball when you're juggling, you know, yes. this particular writer. Yes, yes. And the most fun—that was the hard. I, 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 I've directed a lot of plays in my life. Um, 
I was hired when I was 18 to, to uh, have a touring group of kids, and one of them is on SWAT now, you know, so I, I, oh. I you know, it's just so crazy that these people, you know, go on to have a life in, in this industry and this business and this, uh, they're so talented that you just meet so many great, great people. And uh, I had so much fun because of the 24 people in this mm -hmm. cast are, I'm not going to call them saints because they're far from that, <laughs> but they're really fun, warm, uh, generous souls. And when you see them all play together, it's infectious. Um, there was a, a boy who wrote me, he had just graduated from Yale, and he said, I love Simile and I'd love to be in your play. And he came in and auditioned for uh, Steve and I, and then I called a friend of mine who went to Yale with him and said, is this guy great? Because he seems great. And he said, you're going to love him. He's so good in this play that it was just a joy to work with the new people that I've never worked with. And then I brought a lot of people in that, um, a lot of people in that I've worked with for 20 years. But it's a big, doing it's, Shakespeare. it's a big cast. It's 24 people. Yeah, it's, it's that, that's big in the universe. 24. I, well, I've been a member of a resident company for 35 years. When we do Shakespeare, we have 12 people. Mm. Um, so this is twice that. Imagine how much more more would be. Yeah. Um, <laughs> when people tell me less is more, I yes. always quote Frazier, yeah. which he always says, imagine how much more more will be. And mm. I, I love that. Anyway, anyway. Uh, 24 people is good for Shakespeare. He had 18, I believe, uh, three boys who played the women. And that's why when people say, why are there so few women? He had three boys who played the women. That's who he wrote the parts for. And so there's usually three, you Mariah, Viola, and Olivia. Right. Um, must, have been harder, must have been harder to get really good boy girls yeah. to cast people in that role. And then they would, sure. their voices would change and you'd have to find three I new know. ones. Yeah. Imagine that. Imagine that. Uh, I'm going to play Gertrude. No, you're not. <laughs> not, anymore. Um, not anymore. Not anymore. But uh, maybe that part you could. So, uh, yeah, there were reasons for it all. And I, because I was a member of an acting company, I'm really fascinated in his acting company. And I can hear the actor that he wrote the parts for in the different places. So let's, let's go from that, that as an actor directing... You bring, I mean, and you've had directors who were not actors, and you must have had directors who were actors. I have had the greatest directors, I think, breathing, and I've had the worst directors breathing. <laughs> and so we're all the good ones, actors. We're no, all the good. You learn a lot from that. Yeah. You learn a lot yes, from that. Yes. Um, I've, I've, I've had very few directors who were also actors. Uh huh. Um, oh. uh, maybe you know a handful in my life. Most of them are trained. To directors chosen to be directors. Mm -hmm. Steve has said himself he's a director because he thinks he's a rotten actor. <laughs> I, I, he has the you would have been if you could have if you'd been a good actor you would have been on stage. Personality of any human being, and he's so smart. How could he not be a great actor? <laughs> but he chooses to remain on that side of the footlights, and who could blame so him? Do you, what, what do you bring as an I actor? I think it's easier and more fun to direct. I do. I think it's uh. impossibly hard work if you act well. <laughs> uh, I think. Acting less than excellently is uh, easy. Like people always go, oh, I'd like, you know, I used to dig a ditch or I used to be a plumber. This is so easy. And I was like, you're doing it wrong. Um, <laughs> you know, it's, it's pretty impossible if, if you do it right. It, you know, because it has to be the first and only time every time you do it. It has to be so personal that it's the most important part of your day. Um, if you don't leave a piece of you out there, you're not doing it, even if it's a comedy. Um, so I find acting 
to be some kind of crazy, I mean, Sartre or Camus or somebody said that it was, it was the metaphor for living. You know, you pack all your passion into something that you know is ephemeral and going to go away, you know. <laughs> but it's, it's an incredible, uh, directing is trying to get everybody, who, all those types of people who are so passionate and crazy into the same story which most directors don't achieve and do it um, that I've worked with. Um, and so, the, you know, to try to get everybody on that train to tell this story in this amount of time for now is, is the job. You know, and then luckily you get to collaborate with designers and you get to, you know, try things out. Somebody just said, why did you cut this event in the play? And I said, because I thought it was wrong for 2019. I thought it was wrong for the story we were telling. I thought, you know, there were many, many reasons and when Ian McKellen is asked what makes a great director, uh, it's why I think Steve is one. Taste. You know, taste. <laughs> you have to trust their taste. And so when somebody has excellent taste, you watch their work and you go, oh, I feel taken care of. I feel mm -hmm. attracted to this. I feel that I can, you know, jump into this world for a while because mm -hmm. it makes me happy and excited and scared and triggered and all the things that you want to be by a play. Anyway. Ask me another question. <laughs> Jeez. I'm, I'm, I'm running out. No, no, no. You're so I'm like, good at this, and I'm so terrible. No, no, no. No, honey, you're the star here. I, yeah. I, I, no, I, I just were. watched this. I just watched no. this. Um, I love watching rehearsals. I, um, I don't know why more people don't want to, don't pay you to watch rehearsals. I, we couldn't arrange that. <laughs> <laughs> Steve, there we no, go. You can take a class. We'll go amongst you when you come um, because uh, it's the only way, actually, for me to understand the play, to watch it come to life, to watch people do it over and over again, for me to get inside the... I can't read the play. And actually, I've talked to actors, too. It's like, you can't read this. You have to rehearse it to get Steve it. Steve always takes this the wrong way. But when I first picked up, when I was like 20, picked up Love's Labor's Lost, I threw it across the room. It wasn't, it wasn't when he did it. I loved his production. It was great. And I offered to play the hardest part in it because he just spoke in Latin. And I was like, well, somebody's going to play that part. I guess I will. Um, but, but the play was so hard that to read because there are multiple characters doing multiple, you know, like there were four women and four men. Try reading Cymbeline. Yeah. Cymbeline, I had a hard time reading. Oh. Uh, you know, and, and how do you do that if you aren't aware of it? They, you know, uh, the guy at Princeton, Harold Bloom will say, oh, I like to read them because whenever I see a production of it, it disappoints what I imagine because uh. I am a genius. Um, and you say, oh, Harold, sit down. Um, <laughs> you say, they're meant to be performed. Yes. He wrote them as plays, not as the works of Shakespeare. Playing is much more fun than working. And so when you see the plays, um, you... You, they, it comes to life for you, and that mm. guy is Polonius, and that guy is Laertes, and that guy is Hamlet, and you don't have to picture it while you're reading it, which because it's not a novel, it's yeah. not a novel. There's no descriptions. There's no, right. you know what I mean. That novels are fun to read because you can imagine it all in your head. Plays are tough, man, because that you don't get any help um, uh, to establish what this name of somebody is and then what they're saying. So it takes a long time to have a relationship with a play. I think. Yeah, that's and I feel like that's that's why I like to go to rehearsals and um, yeah. and understand the and then go to the play. Sister play always says, "What do I need to know?" And I say, "Come see it." Come see it. You got to come see it. Um, something came and went. Uh, we have we have time for let's let's do a few questions now and then we'll come back. We can do, if we can do anything. Do we have? There's 
You want to stand up, please, and, and I will repeat it so people can. We're going to repeat the We're going to repeat the question. Just for everybody. I was uh, going to ask uh, for, the, for the part of the play is set in World War I, and I guess, and for the costumes, how did that choice come about? Spoiler alert. Yeah. <laughs> um, I was going Wait, to. Wait, this is a question about the costumes in the play. Why? Was it decided by the director and the designers to have part of the world take place in World War I? And that was because I originally wanted to do archetypal Disney figures. There's a Wicked Queen and there's a Morning King. And, there's, and then I thought that was kind of cute and that people would just write in the paper that it was cute. And I don't, th I don't think Shakespeare has many things, but he's not cute. Um, so I said, I, I, it's the Brits versus the Romans. So the Romans is easy because we always think of, well, it takes place in the time of Augustus Caesar, right? So we go to all those biblical movies that we've seen growing up, sword and sandals, and we said, the Romans are gonna be that. That's just what they have to be. But in the actual text, it jumps like 1500 years <laughs> when they leave the countries. All the romances are about two countries. When they go to the other country, it's a different time period. So I said, that gives me a lot of freedom, doesn't it? And I said, Brits to me, I, I, when I was a boy, I was directing when I was in my 20s, and uh, I was assigned at the Howard Junior Theater on Cape Cod to direct The Beauty and the Beast. And my designer was going to be an illustrator who's rather famous named Edward Gorey. And he lived, he lived in Yarmouthport, and I lived at Dennisport. So I went to his house, and that was a trip, and we'll t some night before the fire, I'll tell you all about that. And uh, I went and had meetings with him, and he took out Victorian books and illustrated and books and, and showed me that he wanted the beast to be a walrus. And I was very excited about working with him, and around that time, a friend of mine from my theater company was playing Redfield in his Dracula on Broadway, and he did all the black and white sets for it and the clothes for it. There was always a touch of red and all that Broadway. And I was fascinated with him. So I said, oh, British, Edward Gorey, which is the, Ed we're calling it the Edwardian period, but that, <laughs> that only lasted 10 years, and ours kind of covers 20. We go to World War I. So, Adrian Hall, who was my hero, he was my first boss, he directed a Galileo, and there were World War I soldiers, but everybody else was in like Renaissance, and I loved that so much. It, it was so cool! So sometimes when you work with directors and they go, you're gonna play Captain Hook, but I don't want you to have black hair and a red coat because that's been done. And I'm like, can I try wearing a black wig and a red coat? And they go, well, maybe for the first scene. And then you come out with the sword and the hook and the red coat and the black wig, and they go, oh, that's cool. And the audience goes, there he is. <laughs> so there's something about coolness and recognition. And to, to get back, Ian McKellen says, the audience in Shakespeare's time saw a guy in green and knew that was the sheriff. Saw a guy that was purple and knew that was the richest guy. Saw a guy in gray and knew that was a doctor. Oh, and we don't do that. We see, we see everybody in pumpkin pants. So Orson Welles, a long time ago, said, what if we dress people in clothes that mean something to us? And so the, anyway, I went to Edwardian England because I thought they should be really stick up the fanny and the Romans should be sensual and warmongering, and then the and metal and leather. And okay, you know what I mean? Okay, in that okay, world. Sit, okay, okay, sit down. <laughs>
But then there's the kids from Wales, and that was something <laughs> yeah. else. There's yes. three worlds. Yeah, there's three worlds. Okay. You, what? You, you, he kept squinting, and when people squint at me, I have to keep talking. Yeah. Is that because they go like this? They go like no. you're full of. Yeah. No. And you have All to right. just maybe, okay. Uh, yeah. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. All music. Right. Let's talk about music in, oh. in the. There's really lovely music. There in are two music. songs in Shakespeare's Cymbeline. There mm -hmm. is Fair No More, which is his most famous, uh, I believe, lyrics for a song. Um, in the in Sondheim's The Frogs and in Hell and Hades, Shakespeare and uh, Shaw have an argument about who's the best poet, and Shakespeare wins using Fear No More. So it's, it's a beautiful, beautiful uh, kind of a death. And song. we had a composer. And the it's first one. Right. I'm, I'm getting it. Okay. <sighs> You're so impatient. Um, and the second one is just a, a seduction, goofy song done by Clock. So I knew I needed two songs. And then Steve always says, we've got to get people's attention at the beginning. He used to have a choreographer who would do a movement piece, that those of you who have seen all of our work, um, we used to start with a movement piece. I thought we should start with a song, because I had a composer already writing those two songs. So I used language from the first scene, which is two gentlemen telling each other the exposition. <laughs> and I turned it into a song where every single character introduces themselves to you, which is not a new idea, but I felt that if it was done to music, it would heighten it, it would get your attention, and it would set this kind of fairy tale entertainment. That so, and let me just tell you that I, I didn't read Symbols, I couldn't, but I watched a three-hour BBC version of it, don't which I don't, like, no, I was it was good for me. <laughs> I almost fell asleep, I did almost fall asleep. A few I times. guessed there about 20 minutes. No, I, no, but it was my way of reading it. So at the beginning, there are two guys talking endlessly Doing, and, it, and you cannot follow it. They tell and what the you, exposition of, the, and of what, what you, you need to know. Of what you need to know. And, this, the way, and you'll see how beautiful this is done in the song. Um, and it's clear. Because I've worked on so many Shakespeare's that the Winter's Tale does the same thing. Four guys come out that you don't know. And when I directed Winter's Tale, we did it with characters that you did know. Yep. Um, and, but also there's something about music that changes the temperature yes. of, of everything. It's and like, then I put in, the queen goes mad, and you never see that. That happens off stage. So we put in a mad scene that we took... Uh, uh, you'll, those of you who are scholars will recognize language that we took from other Shakespeare plays. And we also did a song about going to Rome, about Rome. And that's, uh -huh. there are lyrics from uh, Julius Caesar, from Coriolanus, from there. We went in and took stuff that was uh, out of his other plays. Which is so spectacular. It's you spectacular. Can't just, you know, yeah. start singing, you know, you can't I tell left my heart at San Francisco in the middle of uh, Shakespeare. Yeah, right. Because that, that will make a comment on the language that is the actual text. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, I, I've done it in the past, but it, 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 it's good for comedies. You know, every single production of Tammy the Shrew goes to Tony Bennett. And, um, <laughs> no, I mean, there's like, oh, it's Italy, so we'll use Sinatra. <laughs> you know, that'll be fun for the audience. And so after you see that 17 times, you say, I'm going to do something different. But it, what's so lovely about that is that take, taking the lyrics from other places, from other Shakespeare plays, it just adds a kind of depth to it, and when and I, I didn't recognize them. I knew that from watching the rehearsal. But when you know that, um, and I don't know where they're from, it just there. It's the ethos. It's his genius. It's the depth, yeah, I went, and it's I went all to in there. See yeah. a, a measure for measure that they started singing Cole Porter in the middle of it, and it was jarring. Yeah. To my ear, I just for some reason I. Because it was the only time. It wasn't, like sometimes if they're placed there, Steve did a wonderful kind of jukebox, yeah. uh, Two Gentlemen of Verona, that was really fun. Really fun. And, and that's a great use of that, you know. But 
Um, this one, for some reason, they just did Cole Porter in like Act Four. Yeah. And I went, oh! <laughs> like I, I just was jarring. One funny thing that um, whenever I see a, a, a really wonderful piece of theater and people go out and go, isn't it amazing? They can play music and they can sing and they can move. And it's like, yeah, they're trained actors. If people are still All stunned, trained actors can't sing a dance no, no, move. But, yeah. No, but a lot of them can. And the fact that you yeah. have people in this production who can move and who can sing and who can play many it instruments. It may be of interest to you that a lot of that came out of you know, mistakes. They're, they're, the the greatest, the, my favorite moment in the whole play, and I'll tell you after you see it, but came out of a mistake. We didn't have anything to work with, so we grabbed something as a rehearsal thing, and it was so brilliant. But and that's, fun isn't and that's what rehearsal is? Rehearsal does. is that it's all it about. You discover right? things. That, yeah. And and in the casting of it, I had three people drop out, and Millie, who, this goes back to the last question, I have a, a collaborator who writes all my music. I write the lyrics and she writes the music and so for this one I, I went to Shakespeare for the lyrics but the last one we did was a concrete jungle book which was for uh, the jungle book in the future um, and I wrote the lyrics and she wrote the music so for this one I said um, we're, we're, we're just going to I don't know where I was going music Millie yeah Millie Massey is a genius she wrote the five songs and I think you'll hear about eight times that she wrote this stuff she actually wrote a little thing for the dream because we were battling with that dream, right? She asked me what the hardest thing was, and I said the dream. It, it's really hard to know the ghosts of the parents. They talk a lot, and you have to listen to who they are. And then the Jupiter comes out on an eagle. Um, and I decided not to have him on the eagle, and you'll see how I did it. You'll see how he did it. You'll see how he did it. But, um, but again, it's the, you were saying this before about acting, and that you know, pe oh, oh, people oh. think... So the people dropped out, people, yes. and, right. the, and Millie turned to me and said, I need a violin. <laughs> <laughs> so the guy who plays the head of the Roman army actually has to play a violin as well. That was and, and we knew a guy. So and, and who is unbelievable, a gorgeous singer. Yeah, gorgeous singer. Like jaw dropping. And he plays the spoons and in, in an emergency. <laughs> Not, he doesn't play the spoons in, in, in this. Emergency, Don't worry. Move a piano. Yes, yes, yeah. No, no. no. Uh, so uh, you know, he and he had done that for a production we had both done of Inherit the Wind. He played the violin and played a character. And so we used him for the same gifts, yeah, and he's amazing. He's amazing. And they're all amazing. They're, it's really, it's a very talented bunch of people. But again, you know, what you were saying about actors, um, and this is true for writers, too, is like, I know how to write. I know how to read out loud. Don't you should be able to do time. that. Don't, Don't you forget every time? Yeah, absolutely. When you have to start uh, again, yeah. it's like I forgot everything, everything I ever learned. Yeah. And then in the room, thank God, with other people, you start to remember you can't do it at home alone, no. pushing pennies around. You have to be I writing. Yeah, yes, but uh, with directing. That's why I like rehearsals. It's directing. a lot more fun. I mean, but well, thank God two years ago, Steve gave me this opportunity. And so I had a long time to gestate mm. what ideas. And I would be in the bathtub and go, what if the war was like this? Because I, I was sick of, you know, people hitting each other with swords and knowing it was fake. You know? And I was like, what if the God is like that? And what if they're, you know, I don't know. But you just get ideas because you're allowed to live with it a long, long time. There's something as a, as, a, as a civilian watching a play come together, Shakespeare play come together, is how much is cut from the original script. And I, you know, it's like, oh, 
cutting Shakespeare? What is this? Yeah. But as you said many times, this, we're not going to do a four-hour production here. We, you know, we people need to go to the bathroom. I think and the scholars <laughs> will know as well yes. that, yeah. that they think that when they Condell and Hemming put together the first folio, that they put every scene that every actor had, and so that wasn't necessarily the one that right. they did. That was right. There was another scene he added because he had an idea, like me in the bathtub, and he said, oh, we'll do this scene. And so they put, compiled them all, and so a lot of them are over four hours. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I can't imagine that even with the bears and the oranges and the juggling, <laughs> that anybody would want to sit there and watch poetry stand for four there. hours. Stand so there, stand there. Stand, right, exactly. Right, right. Um, another question, another question, another That's question. Questions. Another question, yeah, sir. First of all, a, a comment. You saw the play that's right. It's one of the planet and then Jupiter. Work. <laughs> there you go. So see, don't cut it. Posthumus said, what do, I, what do I change? Why do you want that in there? I don't change. I said, maybe it's not about you. That is soft. Yeah. I saw this plays are uh, about forgiveness. Uh, the, all four of those last plays are about forgiveness. He was at a time in his life after his son died and, and uh, the globe burnt down and, you know. Um, I just felt strongly that, you know, people get very tense about that scene in the bedroom. And they're like, how are you going to handle that? And I'm like, well, I think we're going to handle it like it's a fairy tale, like all of them. I don't, I think he's there to gather information um, to win the bet and not to abuse her or harm her in any way. You know, I, I don't think he's that dangerous. If he were there to harm another human being, then he can't be forgiven at the end. Do you, know, do you know what I mean? So the play is about forgiveness. So I sat him in the throne, just like the older boy who's a monkey. I mean, he's a, you know, he's a, he's a bear. He's a <laughs> natural animal. And he puts the crown on. And that tickled me so much. I said, why doesn't Yakima, who basically is an idle, rich, horrible guy who just goes around making trouble because he doesn't have a real job, um, why doesn't he go sit on the throne? And then the king turns around and goes, ah, then he goes, everybody's pardoned. And that was the kind of feel good, you know, everybody feels good. And I wasn't making any statement of Donald Trump or, or um, you know, I, I just wasn't making any political statement about that at all. I wish you hadn't I said was, that. Now I'm going to think about that. What, dear? I wish you hadn't said that. No, no, no. I mean, he looked at me and said, why is the wicked one yeah, on yeah, the throne? Yeah, yeah. Um, I wasn't making a, a, a thing about, no. uh, you know, Edmund or Richard III or Iago. Uh, he's not that. He's not a famous villain. You know, the most famous image from this play when I was given as a kid collected works was Yakimo coming out of the trunk and her asleep. And that always stayed with me and I knew how important that was. But how do you deal with that in a Me Too generation? And also, I mean, you know, how are you sensitive to it? How do, how do you make it? Contained in this world that everything is kind of like the war is not anything but really fun. You Can know, I say one thing a, about that? It's a volleyball game. Yeah. So, so Jacobo, in that scene, which is a very creepy scene in the bedroom. It should be creepy. Yeah, no, but he gets in the trunk and he says, heaven is here, hell. 
So he knows what he knows that he's a bad guy. He, he knows, knows that he's acting badly. Unlike and Iago. Oh, he loves one, hell. Yeah. Yeah, he, he loves hell, and he says, he bring knows. It on. Yeah, he yeah. knows. He knows that he, he's Lady Macbeth, though. I mean, Iacomo is not. No, he's not. But he knows. He knows that he's treading on a line, and then he actually. I think Iacomo is. Is trying to win a bet. He's win, trying to win a because bet. Because he's do bored anything. and yeah. he's, you know, and he's and a jerk. Loves, trying to suck the juice out of the testosterone arm. poisoning. And he's, yeah, yeah he's one all, of the boys. They yeah, they all, all are. I know. All Different the men flavors. Men in this play are not the, who you want to grow up to. Except Pisanio, right? Pisanio is Remo Rivaldi, who is a CSC favorite, an ARTX favorite, and uh, the greatest actor in the world. And yes, he's, if we all grow up guy. to be Remo Rivaldi, then we'll be happy. Well, with P yeah. or Pisania. Wait a minute, I'm talking Pisanio, about Pisanio. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But that's, that's casting. That's you have to find somebody for Pisanio yes. who he's is really the generous. Moral heart. And, yeah. and they all beat him up. They all want to hang him yeah. and blame him for everything that happened. Every single character, including uh, Imogen, Imogen. Yeah. says, this is Pisanio's fault. fault. Yeah. And I'm like, isn't that, you know, no good deed goes unpunished. But he finally, finally. They all live happily ever after, happy except for the two horrible ones. Yes. Who deserve it, really. So, more questions. <laughs> yeah. Did you, were you done with your question? I have follow-up, but it's more of a comment. I know you shortened some things. Why not shorten the fight with clock? Oh, it's fun. Well, Love that scene. Come on. I, I was Could've thinking of it, and I think Steve said the fight goes on a long time, and I loved it so much. I did love it so much. You didn't love it so much, but I actually, you may have I, a different tea level than the I no gasped. One. No. Um, Wait a minute. Because we're going to come into the audience. We're going to do Oprah now. That's enough of that. Wait a minute. You're next. <laughs> this is just turned into the Phil Donahue show. What? Um... If I could follow up on something you said, um, you mentioned that you thought that there was a connection between the, uh, this, this idea of redemption in the play and uh, Shakespeare having lost his son. And I wanted to ask you to spell that out. And then more generally, is that tr in your experience, your vast experience, has that been true generally of Shakespeare? Is there often, uh, is there often in your uh, perception, this connection between what was happening in Shakespeare's life and the progression of the ideas that he emphasized in his plays? I, that's an amazing question and probably would take all day and, and I'm not equipped, but I, I will say that he wrote those early plays and as, and as wonderful and deep as the characters in Taming of the Shrew are compared to where he got them from the Commedia dell'arte, uh, characterization was, was his way in. And Richard III is, there's no characters that you really want to play in that play except for him. You know, those are the early plays. Those are the, and if he only wrote them, I don't think we would have a Shakespeare festival in every town or we would study him in college. The early plays are the early plays. As he went, which is like every 15 years, there is like a golden spike of some brilliant genius where he writes uh, Midsummer Night's Dream and Romeo, Romeo and Juliet in the same year. And then 15 years later, he writes Hamlet and Twelfth Night in the same year. I mean, this is what we think, you know, by what is told to us, which is four scraps of paper that say second best bed and somebody, you know, good, went in and good, killed a deer on the wrong property. Um, but what has been handed down to us is uh, through all the research, through all the academic, uh, is that is, the, is, is might not be 
correct to feel this way, but I have personalized it in a way and in my work that you can hear it in my voice, that the man's life, yes, is, is about a writer who is a man of the theater, who is just getting better and better. And when my other favorite guy in the world is Walt Disney, and when they went to him and said, we want more dwarves, we want more pigs, he said, you can't top pigs with pigs, um, meaning you can't repeat yourself. Nobody wants the direct to um, video sequel. Nobody wants the Lion King with real lions. Um, you, well, evidently everybody does, but uh, <laughs> that's, that's why I'm doing Shakespeare in the Park um, and not making a gazillion dollars with real lions that are so ugly. Um, so, no, I, I liked it. So. Um, I, I, my point is, is that he never repeated himself. So all of a sudden he gets to a period of his life where he's writing a play where the lead is dead in Act 5. You know, Timon of Athens is, is dead in Act 5. That's why, like Cymbeline, that's not done every year. Um, there, there are, Troyes and Cressida is different than, you know what I mean? He just keeps topping himself and keeping himself interested. And what makes me, because I was a Trinity rep for 35 years with the same bunch of people through different, you know, like the ART had a resident company for decades. You get fascinated with Moliere and Shakespeare for writing for the same group of people and how when this one left, the clown changed and when this one left, the, you know. It's just amazing to kind of put it together and feel it in your bones and think of him uh, having that trajectory of topping himself of excellence. So the last four are these really sweet fairy tales that have a lot of danger and it's the Jacobean period so they cut people's heads off and they cut people's hands off and they cut people's tongues out. But we handle it in this version to not take that so seriously that everybody is going to be so freaked out by a decapitation that they can't watch the rest of the play and have a sweet for <laughs> forgiveness, which is what the play's about. You know what I mean? I, I couldn't. I saw a production where they dragged out a, a dummy that was spurting blood from the neck. And the audience laughed. It's the, all the reviews mention it, if you look it up. But it, like, we laugh because it's so fake. And theater is fake. It's not the movies. So how do you find a way that we're all in the same room making believe the same thing? So what is that vocabulary? And that comes to you just by working with actors and designers. Did that answer your question? Hey, I think, I think the loss of... I don't think anybody knows. I, I think, I think the traumatic <laughs> loss, I think after, I, I only know from my life that after traumatic personal loss that uh, a different kind of wisdom comes. That's, that's your answer. Also, I, at that, how old was he when, and when he was writing these things? He was in his, do we know? Yeah, so, and that was old for that period. If people died in yeah, their 20s no, and 30s, like, he was, a, he was, he had lived long enough I'm always amazed to have that a lot of losses. There is 80. I was like, were there 80 year olds in 60? Well, pretty, pretty rarely. So. Um, yeah, because Polonius has a teenage daughter and, and Prospero has a teenage daughter, and you go, how old are these guys? Um, yeah, they're so not they're, 80. They're not 80. <laughs> but on all those Victorian right. drawings, they're white beards yeah, down right, to the, right. like it's the Bible. Right, 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 right. Um, anyway, I'm sorry. So let me, okay, can I just finish with uh, another? Uh, yes. Yeah, we're going we're gonna to finish. We're going to get out of here. We're going to get out of here. You're go gonna see get a to, really good play. You're going to get to eat something and then go see a play. Um, so this is, again, Ralph, we'll end with Ralph again. I Ralph love Wolf. Ralph. I do too. Um, he was here? 
Well, he was here. He was a member of the, muse of the Athenaeum. So how fantastic. how fantastic. And that's one of the lovely things about Boston is that it is, um, it is a venerable place with venerable people. Every he, day I walk by the Poe statue. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, so it actually answers a little bit thing about the biography. We're always wondering about the biography. And he, um, this is one of the things he wrote. Um, so we don't know a lot about him and people make stuff up. And he said, so far from Shakespeare's being the least known, he is the one person in all modern history known to us. What point of morals, of manners, of economy, of philosophy, of religion, of taste, of the conduct of life has he not settled? What mystery has he not signified his knowledge of? What office or function or district of a man's work has he not remembered? What king has he not taught state? What maiden has not found him finer than her delicacy? What lover has he not outloved? What sage has he not outseen? What gentleman has he not instructed in the rudeness of his behavior? We have, we have his recorded convictions on these questions which knock for answer at every heart, on life and death and love and wealth and poverty, and on those mysterious and demonical powers which defy our science and which yet interweave their malice and their gift in our brightest hours. Thank you all so much for coming today.